You're listening to Nowhere to Run with Chris White on the Revelations Radio Network. Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to Nowhere to Run. My name is Chris. If you have any questions for me, they are more important than ever as the new format relies a lot on your questions for the topics for this show. If you want to send me a question, you can go to any one of my websites and there is a contact button there. Just hit that. You may write something in the subject line like questions for the show or questions for NTR so I can set them aside. Okay, a few show notes and things. First, on some things that I've put out recently, the Caesars Messiah Debunked video and website. You can go to CaesarsMessiahDebunked.com and see the video that I put out, what is it, last week, the week before that. Um, This particular theory had been circumventing the globe after this uh, guy, Joseph Atwill, put out this uh, very misleading press release and all these news agencies picked up on it and whatnot. It's a pretty ridiculous theory that the Romans invented Jesus easily debunked, but yet it still circumvented the globe, in part due to a tweet by Richard Dawkins. But anyway, I had some reservations at first about doing it because it it was like one of these things that everybody was going to weigh in on. You know, I mean, every apologist from, from you know, across the world is going to put out something about this just because it, it became the sort of uh, thing that was going on. And so I usually don't like doing stuff like that because, hey, if other people are doing it, what do I need to be doing it for? But the reason I ended up doing it was because this has been a theory. It's been out for, you know, a long time, eight years or something like that. And I get a request to debunk it like maybe once a month, maybe once every other month or something like that. And I always look at it and I'm like, really, do people believe this? You know, if it was big enough, I might consider doing it, but uh, but I'm not going to do it. And then the last time somebody sent it, which was actually before all this stuff broke, uh, I said, you know, I really should do something about this. I mean, this is like um, the millionth time somebody sent me this. And even though it's not very well known, I should just go ahead and do it. And I just came so close to doing it back then. And if I had done it back then, when all this stuff broke, this would have already been out. Uh, so I kind of felt a little guilty for not doing it. So that's one of the reasons I did it. But the other reason was that um, even though a lot of people were putting stuff out, it was a lot of the kind of mythicist crowd, an atheist crowd that was really derogatory anyway towards uh, Christianity. And even the people that uh, weren't, uh, with a few exceptions, were kind of putting, you know, not really saying the important things that I thought needed to be said. So I wanted to try to put something very short and to the point, and uh, I hope I accomplished that. I really like the, the style of that video where it's it's really trying to be very short, very um, uh, poignant, but, uh, and I feel like I can do more with the short things that I can, the long things, if they're, if they fit that category. Some things you just can't do a very short debunking on, like Ancient Aliens Debunked really had so many different issues that it needed to debunk, but this is something that you can pretty much dispense with uh, pretty quickly. And I think there's a lot of things out there like that, and I'd like to do more stuff like that. Okay, so also have been really trying to focus my efforts on getting finished with the Daniel study. Uh, it's been a year now, actually in four days it will be a year since I started that study. I've got one more chapter to write, and I've d- described this earlier. One of the reasons I'm trying to get these books out is because, uh, particularly the Mystery Babylon book and the Daniel commentary, is because some of the other things that I want to do really require them to be there for references in order to uh, work with this project that I'm hoping to to do afterwards. So they're kind of necessary precursors. So trying to focus energy on doing that, I just put out the last uh, most... Uh, 
one of the, the sections that I've been really excited about, Daniel eleven thirty six through 45, which is talking about the Antichrist and his wars. And it, it's really the section that I wanted to focus on right from the beginning. So I finally got a chance to do that. The research took a long time for these last, for Daniel chapter 11, very difficult chapter. I split it into two parts. But one more chapter, a relatively short chapter, chapter 12, then I have to rewrite the first one and perhaps the second one. But after that, I should be able to concentrate a little better on some of the other things. I've been doing some radio interviews for the Mystery Babylon book. You can check them out online if you're interested. One recently that I just did was uh, with Derek Gilbert, View from the Bunker. You can find that on the Revelations Radio Network. Also with Doug Hamp. You can find that um, if you just Google that, Doug Hamp or Douglas Hamp. Also one called Prophecy Zone Radio, and I think that's all. I've got a few others lined up, but it's been a pretty pleasant experience. I I guess I kind of expect the worst with a lot of that stuff. I have this view that it's you know nobody's going to uh, be interested in it and it's not going to go over well. But to my surprise, it's been really well received in terms of people accepting the idea or at least being open to the idea so it's a uh, it's been pretty interesting in fact one of the sort of really highlight of my uh, week a few weeks ago was i had been writing this um this theologian this bible scholar guy who um you may or may not know his name if i told it to you uh, you would if you were like were really into reading papers and stuff from theologians but he's like i even told him this in the emails like if if, if theologians were you know, had baseball cards or the equivalent, I would own all of yours. But I was just writing him about a Hebrew grammar question. <clears throat> it's not Michael Heiser. I mean, I think Michael Heiser is a great scholar too, but this is a different guy. This is like a guy that Bible scholars know about all over the world. They know Heiser too, but anyway. So, so I wrote him about this Hebrew grammar question. I just mentioned a few things like, I didn't even mention my book or anything like that. And he says to me, hey, are you the same Chris White that wrote the Mystery Babylon book? I want you to know that I'm really open to the idea. And we began to discuss about that. I was like, what? It's like he said he saw it on Amazon. And um, I think that sort of is the point that I was trying to make with the books is that there's a lot of stuff with putting on on Amazon that that nobody is going to see otherwise. Like this guy is not going to see any of the videos on YouTube, even though they're all free. And he's not going to read any of the blog posts that is basically the same thing as a book. But he did notice it when it's climbing the ranks on Amazon which I should quickly update you about. I know I said the goal for this book was to get it in the top five of that particular category, in this case, prophecies. Um, and and it has been achieving that, although it's kind of hard to tell. There's this ranking system that uh, is not immediately noticeable if you went to the prophecies section, it, it, but there's this other one that's rank, updated every hour, and it's gotten as high as number two and number three. Um, though it's not consistently ranking that high, it's usually in the top, um, you know, 20 or, or something like that. So that's pretty cool. Um, it's not exactly the most financially lucrative thing, but I guess I, I never really had any intentions of this being something to, to make money off of. Uh, it is almost paid for itself, uh, which is, you know, as much as you can expect. I, I kind of expect all the book projects like the sleep paralysis upcoming book and, and all these things to ultimately, you know, lose money or at least break, break even. But, Again, the reason to do this is is to get an idea out to people that I couldn't get any other way, uh, like this Bible scholar. Can you imagine what would happen if if a guy like that started writing papers about this stuff, and you know it could really actually change the landscape of of all this stuff. So, so anyway, that's that's that. Um, another thing that's important is the Christianity 101 DVDs. Okay, so. 
I recently made these available for download so you can download all 8 gigabytes of material. The reason I didn't do that before was because it was difficult to find a way to, to allow people to download that much information without doing torrents. Uh, torrents are complicated for people to figure out if they've never done it before. Plus, you got to send them to, you know, if you send them to a good torrent site that's seeded well, you've got to send them to a pretty dangerous place with a lot of really bad banner ads. But um, so I finally found a good company that just is a direct download link for all eight gigabytes of the material. If you would like to download that, you can go to any one of the Christianity 101 DVD links. They're on most of my sites, big banners. So just go there, click the Christianity 101 DVD. You also have the option to to order a free DVD if you, uh, for whatever reason, would prefer that or the download isn't working as fast enough or, or whatever. Um, one of the reasons that I did that was because there was a problem recently with the Christianity 101 DVDs where... Uh, a minority of people were getting a DVD that was reading blank, and that was because I didn't finalize the, the DVD, that particular version of Christianity 101, so it, uh, it it showed up as blank. But that problem is fixed now, so if that happened to you, you can reorder the hard copy, or you can go to any one of the, uh, the places where you can order the hard copy and also find the download link. Um, that was special to me because in trying to reach out to all the people that I had sent these to and, and let them know that there was now another option if, if they got the wrong one or a bad one, it was great because they uh, emailed back and I heard for the first time a lot of stories about how the Christianity 101 DVD has helped disciple people and, and really changed lives in terms of you know getting people uh, discipled. I was myself was sort of digitally discipled by putting a lot of this, you know, stuff on my MP3 player, verse by verse teaching and whatnot. So, anyway, if that's something that you're interested in, go to the Christianity 101 DVD section of my website, order a DVD, or check out the download, uh, the new download button. Okay, a few more show notes. I know this is a long show note section. Uh, I'll try to keep these to a minimum in the future. I uh, got two new videos that should be out pretty soon. These are videos that I'm sort of outsourcing to other editors. One is a debunking of the blood moon theory that has gone really super viral. John Hagee put out a book that's like the number one book in prophecy and es eschatology. And it's about the, the Mark Biltz uh, blood moon theory. So putting out a video to counter that. Also making a video of the uh, Nuremberg um, UFO debunked that we did a blog post about not too long ago on ancient aliens debunked and so we're making a video about that so those should be out pretty soon speaking of that um, I'm really excited about ministry because of things like that um, it's sort of ironic that though I personally have less time um, because I'm working a job now and making sure that I'm uh, making money uh, working a job as opposed to doing the ministry stuff full-time Though I have less time to do the ministry stuff, I'm actually able to do more because I don't have to worry about um, making money with the ministry to live on. In other words, so I, I'm making the money to live on out there by working a job. Therefore, any money that comes in through donations or through whatever other streams of income, like the, the book sales, or I'm going to talk about the Audible sponsorship here in a minute, um, any money that comes in just starts going directly into the bank account, the ministry bank account, to be used for ministry projects, which means that I can do things like hire these video editors and just sort of be, uh, you know, do stuff that I want to do. Because a lot of the debunkings and stuff that I want to do, it doesn't really require, what it requires is is me 
telling somebody, okay, this is what we need to do. This is going to be a really big thing. This is where you need to go, and this is what it needs to look like. And I could tell them what I would normally do, and then they could do it. And like, even if I was working full time right now, I would just be focused on one of those videos. It would just be one guy making one video. But even, but now, even though I don't have a full time full time to devote to the ministry, I've got two videos that are being made. Videos that I normally would have done anyway. Uh, at the same time, and not to mention that uh, Adrian is helping with the sleep paralysis book. That's in progress. So um, it's like I'm writing a book to a ministry thing that I think is going to be awesome. Uh, in addition, you know, uh, Frank is over there with the ancient aliens thing, you know, working on content for that. And just all this stuff is happening kind of like, and I posted on Facebook last night that I'm looking for an article writer, somebody that can do some basic research and, and is, is pretty good at writing. I describe in detail what I'm looking for there. If you check out my Facebook page, facebook.com slash nowhere to run, uh, you'll, you'll see what I'm looking for in terms of just an, a simple article writer. If I, if I could do more of that stuff, then I can do like 10 times more than I could do if I was working full time. But anyway, I guess I am just pretty excited about ministry and the possibilities of what we can do. Uh, I couldn't hardly sleep last night. In fact, I posted that thing about needing a writer about 2 o'clock in the morning on Facebook. So anyway, I'm just excited about all that. Thanks for bearing with me through all these show notes. I do have one more. That is, I'm going to try a sponsorship from Audible.com. This is something that a lot of the podcasts that I listen to do. And so I looked into it to see if it's something that I might consider doing. And it looks like a pretty good deal if it works out. So I'm going to try it on a few episodes and see how it goes. Uh, it's pretty self-explanatory, so I'm just going to play the spot. And you can look for it in some future episodes if it does work out. So here's this spot, and then we'll get right into the show. Today's episode is brought to you by AudibleTrial.com. Sign up for a 30-day trial and get a free audiobook download. You can keep your free audiobook even if you cancel your free trial, which you can do at any time, no strings attached. Just go to this link, audibletrial.com slash chris. I will also put a link to the free trial page on the footer of my websites. Audible has over 100,000 titles to choose from. For your free audiobook, I would recommend something from the Great Courses series. These usually retail around $50 each, and they contain university-level courses. I recently devoured all 36 lectures, totaling over 24 hours of content called Living the French Revolution and the Age of Napoleon. Or you might like to download an audio Bible in your favorite version. The ESV, or the New King James Version, retails for close to $50, but you can get one of them for free if you go to this very specific URL, audibletrial.com slash chris. Or maybe you have a book or novel that you've been meaning to read. Why not get it for free and listen to it on your commute to work? You can download the app and listen to your free audiobook on your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. This is pretty much a win-win situation. You get a free audiobook and Audible supports this show. All you have to do is go to this specific URL so that they know I sent you. AudibleTrial.com slash Chris or go to the link in the footer of any of my websites. Thanks a lot. Okay, let's move on to question number one. Question number one is about the law of attraction and quantum mechanics and the ideas put forward in books like The Secret or movies like What the Bleep Do We Know? Do these ideas have any bearing on the Christian? Are they? Is there anything to be learned or gained from these particular ideas? I've received two emails about this recently, so I thought I would try to answer it. I've thought about doing a, a, a sort of debunking about the law of attraction or The Secret, and I still may do that. I recently bought some more 
uh, reading material to brush up on some of these ideas to see if it's a viable project or not. But, um, you know, things like what the bleep do we know are a lot easier to debunk because that, that was a little movie made by a, a cult group named, uh, well, by a person who channeled a bean named Ramtha and this is Ramtha cult or whatever it's called. And they make a lot of claims of, of fact, which are not true in any way, shape or form. And it's very deceptive. And so it's easy to debunk. There's a really good debunking of it online for, uh, on YouTube, just typed in, type in debunked, what the bleep do we know? It's a really funny little debunking of that particular cult classic in the true sense of the word. Um, so, but the secret is a little, little more slippery. It doesn't make that many claims of fact. It's sort of very general, general and vague. Anyway, it, it, its main thesis, of course, is that uh, if you if you think things into existence. Or you can think things into existence. Uh, and it's very materialistic in one sense, saying, like, if you want a Lamborghini and you think about a Lamborghini enough and want it enough, it will uh, show up, basically, in some through some circumstances. It builds on this case slowly by first saying what I think everyone would agree is true. That is to say, to some degree, you thinking positive thoughts will attract positive people and circumstances into your life and you thinking negative thoughts attracts uh, negative people and circumstances of course that is a natural prop to some extent that's that's unquestionably true uh, and there's nothing mysterious about that that's just human nature and and so on and so forth however they extrapolate that to the point where uh, it is making claims like uh, if you just really, really, really think about something, it will it will show up. Now, one people do a number of things, especially in the in the sort of Christian law of attraction world. They will point to those verses that have to do with faith, in which there are quite a lot in Scripture, and say things like, "Well, the Bible uh, also wants you to have faith," and it says, that "In some ways, faith is sort of a prerequisite to." Uh, getting that thing that you asked. And I would say that's also unquestionably true, but the two things are extremely far removed from one another for a lot of different re reasons. Um, first of all, the idea of having faith, and I, of course this is taken too far in in the idea of the word of faith movement and all the stuff that's going on there is sort of a perversion of that uh, idea of, of of all the true things that the Lord says about faith and prayer and their, their, uh, intertwined nature. But the word of faith movement, of course, does things that are far beyond that. The idea of sort of, they even kind of do the quantum mystic thing and saying, you know, if you speak it, it will speak into existence and all these sort of things. And in thinking God before it happens is sort of like almost a way to, to sort of, to force God's hand. I think a lot of those, those things are are, are uh, extra biblical and 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 not true. Um, but the the fundamental difference is that faith is not faith in 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 your words or saying something enough times or whatever. 
faith is faith in God and trust in him because he is awesome and he does what he says because he's this great and awesome God in whom you can uh, rest and trust and, and believe. Uh, if you look at the Bible as a whole, really it's the story of people who believed God was God and could do anything um, despite their circumstances. You know, David had faith uh, in God when he went down in that valley to to fight Goliath and so on and so forth. We could talk about how men of faith, you know, it says that it, without faith it's impossible to please God, and we could go through all the different examples of the so-called hall of faith in the book of Hebrews and so on and so forth. But nevertheless, it's it's repeated quite a lot by the Lord in saying things like, if you have faith the size of mustard seed. And in fact, uh, the series that we've been playing on the Revelations Radio Network and on uh, Bible Prophecy Talk by Charles Cooper, Faith for the Final, is hopefully rekindling this importance in our prayer lives, that faith is indeed crucial. But I hope you're beginning to see some of the differences there. Okay, So in the Law of Attraction, it's the simple act of wanting something enough that will draw it to you, visualizing it existing and so on and so forth, completely removed from any kind of faith in God. Now, of course, the two things are almost impossible to, to, to compare because the one, on the one hand, you have something incredibly shallow and materialistic. And on the other hand, you have the, the, a true child of God praying to God for the things that, yes, they need, but also... also also those things that are within God's will. Now, I don't want to, that to sound like a cop-out, like, oh, well, you can't get that because it wasn't in God's will. But but we must consider the verses like, if we uh, you know, ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if he hears us, we have the thing whereunto we uh, asked for. So basically, it is important to be within God's will. And a lot of times what people are praying for as a true child of God, as a true Christian, are in fact... Uh, you know, you know, if they're praying for the things that they ought to be praying for, um, uh, in your ministry or the things that you know that are God's will, um, or even if you are praying for, hey, I need rent this month, and you're trying your best to get it or whatnot, and you're and you're wondering oh, what to do. Can, is that something you can pray for? Yes, by all means, and have faith in God when you pray. Pray, uh, and He will. Strengthen your faith by giving you those things that you diligently ask for. There's two interesting parables in Scripture that talk about the persistent, the God's expectation of persistent prayer for those things that we need. He gives us the parable of the unjust ruler, where uh, a woman keeps going back to this judge and, and asking him for this particular thing, and he finally relents because of her persistence uh, only. And uh, the Lord akin, you know, makes that uh, to to refer to uh, the our prayer toward God. And in another way, he he says that it's also like a person going in the middle of night, in the middle of night, and knocking on somebody's door, and the person saying, "Go home." It's in the middle of the night, and he's knocking the door because he needs some food because he's got some visitors that showed up. But because of the persistence, he will. Uh, get up and he will give him that person his the things that he needs so we we have to look at that and say there is a connection in that sense there is there is this idea in in the christian world of a persistent asking of not just asking nobody or the world or 
consciousness or whatnot, but asking God for not just anything, but those things in which we need. Um, and I think that, that those those items are are shaped by the Holy Spirit to a certain degree, too. Uh, I don't think you find too many examples of genuinely saved people praying for Lamborghinis like that. Uh, because they want to, as the Bible says, consume it upon their lusts. You ask and you have not because you ask amiss, wanting to consume it upon your lust. So there is a sense that uh, that there is a, a right and a wrong th- things to pray for. Um, and I think that we can determine what those things are, number one, through Scripture is, is our primary tool. I think that having a good knowledge of the Bible uh, sort of gives you that information. I mean, you see not only examples of it, but uh, it starts to just become obvious to you. Uh, And that includes things like health and everything else. We shouldn't um, necessarily see, and now the word of faith people would wrongly see every illness as a result of lack of faith. But we know that that's not true because, for example, Paul has a thorn in the flesh. Surely Paul had faith, but God told him that, that thorn in the flesh was was a, a, a thorn to basically pr- protect him from pride. Another occasion uh, having to do with Paul, Paul um, was going to send somebody, one of his friends, but his friends was sick, so he couldn't do it. So in that case, you know, they prayed for him, he said, and he wasn't, uh, you know, he still was sick. So obviously Paul had faith and we see that person was still sick. Another occasion, I think uh, probably put there exactly for this purpose, had a similar situation with a different person who was sick and then was prayed for and healed. And he went on and did the thing. So we see examples of both situations, people being sick and prayed for and not healed and, and the vice versa. So we, but at the same time, we see them praying for everybody. Everybody gets prayed for and good deal of those people, in fact, were healed. So I, and I think that prayer and faith are important there. Um, so I kind of went off the, the deep end about, about the Christian angle to the, to this. And I don't know if I really answered the question or not. Um, but I do want to get a little bit into the scientific aspect of it because this is where the quantum mystics, as they're sometimes called really springboard into the sort of so-called factual, uh, basis for their theories about this. Um, in other words, to sum up kind of the religious angle, I would say that uh, they they are comparing apples and oranges with the version of the law of attraction that they talk about with the secret. And to bolster their wrong case of something that I would submit doesn't work, um, they point to the Bible as its sort of authority. And they say, well, look, in the Bible you can find a similar kind of thing. But in reality, the, they're not the same thing. And... One, that is to say, the the secret doesn't work um, in in its ultimate purpose, and it just because it's getting, given validity because the Bible says a similar thing, which is not really similar, is no reason to suppose that they are the same thing or talking about the same thing. It's just a very uh, circumstantial sort of similarity, which does not uh, which is not that similar when you really get down to it. Okay, moving on to the scientific basis for the quantum mystic claims. Most of this has to do with the weirdness of the way that particles or you know atoms and, and photons act on the quantum scale. Quantum just means really, really tiny. So on the microscopic sa- scale, there's some weird stuff that these photons do. 
most notably is the double slit experiment, which gave rise to this idea that the observer is somehow changing reality by their observing. Okay, so the basic experiment goes, you shine, for example, a laser uh, dim enough to where it's only sending one photon at a time at these two slits. It can either go through one or the other. Um, and we don't really know what photons are. We don't know what they look like or their structure or whatnot. So partly this experiment was trying to figure out what what a proton or photon is. Is it a is it a wave uh, or is it more like a particle? And the weird thing is is that when they um, just send it send it through the two slits, it acts like a wave. It causes what's known as an interference pattern on the on the wall behind it, which is exactly what you would expect if the light was a wave. Um, however, if you, um, if you, for example, cover up one of the slits, it will act like a particle, which is weird. We started making people think, okay, now is it a wave or is it a particle? That's interesting. But what's even weirder is if they put like a machine to detect which slit a given photon is going through, okay, imagine they're sending one photon at a time toward these double slits and they put like on one of those slits a sort of detector to determine whether or not that photon went through that one to the left or on the top or whatever and whenever they put on put that detector there then it always seems to be a, a, a always acting as a uh, a, a, a particle but when they take the detector off it always seems to act like a wave Okay, so if they put the detector on there, what's interesting is it goes it goes through about fifty percent of that time through that particular slit, which is. But the weird thing is, is that it's acting like something completely different just because there's a detector on there. So this has led people to to the idea because the way this is described in a lot of the scientific language is the observer read detector on one of the slits whenever the observer is there then it changes the outcome of this experiment. So it's led quantum mystics and others to say that it is the human consciousness that is actually uh, changing the results of this experiment, which here's the big extrapolation that they're saying. If, if that's true, then they say that human consciousness can change all atoms all the time just by thinking about it or may, or wanting it to do something, which of course that experiment, even if it was unquestionably true, which I'll talk about in a minute that I don't think it is that the human observer or human consciousness is what is, is making a difference here. Uh, but let's just assume for the sake of argument that it was that by looking at it, you can change it into uh, a wave. Now, now, what the difference here is that it's not, it's not, you're not changing it into whatever you want it to be. Whenever you, whenever the observer, quote unquote, is there, it is acting like a, uh, a, a, a particle. Okay. So whenever you, the observer is off, it's acting like a wave. It's not, you don't get to choose by your will what it's doing. Okay, so number one, we already have a fallacy in this idea that 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 human consciousness can shape reality based on the double slit experiment. Um, 
So to extrapolate that in such a way that these quantum mystics do is so unbelievably unfounded. That is to say, based on this double slit experiment, human consciousness can change and, and shape reality, including getting Lamborghinis if they want them uh, by thinking about it. I mean, such a thing is so far beyond the anything that the double slit experiment is doing it, but but that's usually sold to the person in such a way with music going on in the background and cool graphics and whatnot so they're like yes i want to do magic too so that's how this this happens now back to the idea is a human consciousness actually having any effect on this at all there's been experiments done uh, such as like the eraser kind of experiment where uh, the whatever happens with the double slit experiment, it's then, if you will, erased. And anyway, some other things that I could go into to essentially say that it's not a human can be taken out of the equation. It could be you know, several miles. This is all automated and recorded on uh, on computer hard drives and stuff you know, sending it one photon at a time and it's going through whatever it is and you're, and you're turning the, uh, the detector on the slit on and off. A human can be completely absent from this information, but it's the fact that it's either being detected or not by this machine is what's changing the, the outcome. Not the human being in the room or looking at it or whatever. Okay, the information is on the hard drive. It's been there for a year. Nobody's looked at it. The experiment, you, get, you know what I'm saying? It's not the human itself. So by that, by that alone, it should destroy this idea. Something else is happening. I don't know what. If you know what, let me know because you will win a Nobel Peace Prize and uh, maybe we could go in on that. Uh, but anyway... So I don't know. I, I suspect that I don't know enough about this. I'm going to try to learn a little bit more uh, and see, again, if this is a viable thing to, to do a debunking on or whatever. But uh, but um, I suspect that the nature of the way that they're observing it uh, could have some effect on it. Um, because whenever you measure something, it's going, especially on the subatomic level, you're going to affect it. Uh, you're essentially destroying an atom when you measure it because you have to destroy you have to basically get it to collide with your your uh whatever the board is that anyway same thing you take a picture of something or you observe something in that sense the light is going to affect it in some way but it's especially acute on a subatomic level that based on the fact that we don't know what a photon is or how they behave uh, anyway, I mean, if that was ever modeled out and we understood them a little bit better, perhaps this would make a lot more sense because we could see uh, what fields or methods of detections are affecting them in that way. So I think that there is a, a very, very understandable explanation to this. Maybe not, though. Maybe it's something uh, weird or mystic, in fact. But if it is something weird or mystic, it, it doesn't mean any of the things that the quantum mystics say it does by any stretch. I mean, that... That's just not the logical conclusion of it, even if it was mystical, which I am in no way convinced is mystical at all. Uh, but I am in the same boat with just about everybody else in the world that we don't yet know, like, what the heck is going on with that. So, anyway, um, I guess that's what I had to say about the Law of Attraction, and I'll move on to question number two. Okay, question number two is about Catholicism and salvation. It reads like this. My wife is Catholic, 
I believe she loves Jesus and embraces the Apostles' Creed. I recognize the many apostasies of the Catholic Church, but she says she will never leave the Catholic Church. I have never asked her to, but we do have occasional spirited debates. Brandon House, Jan Markell, and others I respect would say that she is not saved. I have compared Catholic beliefs in mine and tried to find those things that might prevent salvation. As bad as transubstantiation and prayer to Mary and other saints are, I think these are things that Jesus will deal with and other Catholic nonsense on the Bema Seat. I have come to think that the biggest issue might be acceptance of salvation by grace through faith as a free gift apart from any works. But I wonder if even this is an absolute requirement. Who among us has not slid and felt that we had lost our free gift because we sinned? We all fall prey to works doctrine on some level occasionally. And she seemed to be weakening on this issue when we last discussed uh, a few months ago. What say you on the issue of Roman Catholicism and salvation? This is an excellent question. Thank you for writing in. Okay, so first of all, I would say that I've said before that I believe that there are genuinely born-again Catholics out there. Um, but they are genuinely born again, because not because of anything that the Catholic Church teaches. Um, it may be that some priest here or there is actually preaching the true gospel, and, and maybe there's a higher percentage of saved people in that congregation or what have you. But um, as what the Catholic says and teaches about salvation, their version of salvation is not teaching anybody how to get saved. And so therefore it is a lot rarer for a Catholic person to be saved, uh, though those that are either it is because they've heard the gospel somewhere else, or perhaps uh, the, the Holy Spirit led them to an understanding of that, and either they're continuing to go to the Catholic Church because that is how it is in their cultural uh, place, uh, where there is nothing else besides Catholicism, or perhaps they are in progress of now, you know, as they grow and start to be uh, taught by the Holy Spirit, they might uh, say, hey, you know what, this isn't, uh, this isn't, I'm not feeling this is right, and so they may eventually leave the Catholic Church. I think both of those things are possible. I would agree with you quite a lot that the real issue here is the acceptance of salvation by grace through faith as a free gift apart from works. We're so used to hearing this as a doctrinal point. I think we take it away from the the central aspect of this in regard to salvation. This is the thing that is necessary as a part of salvation. Uh, Paul, or whoever wrote the book of Hebrews in Hebrews 6, uh, is talking to them saying, hey, let's move on from the elementary principles, the basic doctrines. We need to get to some important stuff here. He says, I don't want to, in Hebrews 6, 1, lay again the foundation of, so he's about to go through a list of the foundations, mentioning things like baptism and, and resurrection and eternal judgment, all stuff, you know, very base level Christian teaching. But the first thing that he says, and let's, let's not lay again these foundations of repentance from dead works. Whoever wrote the book of Hebrews considered repentance from dead works the first thing to say when speaking of the Christian doctrine. The reason, back in, in Galatians, uh, that was the thing that Paul says, hey, you guys don't even understand the gospel. You guys, you guys are believing a different gospel. In reality, they didn't believe anything too different from the gospel that we would consider the gospel. But the, the difference was that they were believing that it was their works that were helping them become sort of extra saved. 
And Paul says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth just because of that one little thing, because they believed that they were doing something to earn their salvation. So this isn't a matter of uh, of doctrinal dispute or, or whatever. The the I, I think for especially for people uh, in in a, in a legalistic sort of uh, false system, like I believe that Catholicism is. Uh, it is that one thing that will have to happen in order for them to be saved. If they don't understand that, then it's, it's then they're not saved. Quite simply, uh, but and I would so therefore anybody in one of those situ- situations, whether it's the Jehovah's Witnesses or uh, Catholicism or Islam or all of those things, are essentially all legalistic religions that you don't have to talk about Muhammad or the you know the the whatever the other peculiar doctrines. Focus all your efforts on the concept of righteousness in Christ, how we become righteous before God. That's all you got to do. That's what your apologetics is. Throw away all the other apologetics books. Get really, really good at the gospel. The page on all my websites that says the gospel, it's all intended to show that one idea. If you actually look at the reason I posted all of those videos that I posted, there's like, you know, whatever, 12 videos there. They all do the same thing. They point to that exact idea. That's the only idea I cared about as far as getting people to understand the gospel. In my experience of evangelism, I found that this, these, there's two areas of this repentance that are explicitly stated that may be true for any two situations. Let me try to explain what I just said. It's sort of, it's sort of complicated. So the word repentance, whenever it shows up in the Bible, it never says repent of your sins. I mean, that's what I've even said that in videos before, uh, that repentance, what you need to do is repent of your sins. But it never says that. I was called out on that and I had to accept the fact that it never does say that. What it does say is repent from your dead works. And faith toward God, as it says here in, in Hebrews 6.1, it says that in, a, again later on. But it also says, uh, you know, it, it says obviously the word repent, just, you know, God commands everyone to everywhere to repent and things like that. But also in Acts 20.21, 20, it, it gives us exactly what we're to repent from. Testif- he, this is Paul telling everybody what his ministry was all about. I testified to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ almost identical to what we read in Hebrews 6.1. Though there he says, repentance from dead works and faith toward God. Okay, this is what I think that the beauty of this this sort of way of saying that. Okay, so let's take my example for for example. I had a belief in God, um, even a, a belief in repentance from dead works and before I was saved. I, I did believe that. But I lacked something else. I lacked the repentance toward God described in Acts 20.21. What that means, to change your mind about God, that's what repentance means, to change your mind about God. That is the concept of you going from rebellion to non-rebellion. You change your mind about God, changes your mind about who's on the throne of your heart, changes your mind about who is boss, changes your mind about he is God, you are not. You are no longer in rebellion, but you are in subjection to him. That's what repentance toward God means. That's what I needed. My salvation experience had the one thing. I I believed and understood the gospel to a certain degree. But it really was the sort of change of, of, of who's the boss in my life that really was when I was saved. Now, other people might have that reversed, okay? Like a Catholic, for example, or really... 
Uh, yeah, Catholic is a great example. A Catholic might understand that God is God and they are not, and they need to be in subjection to God's... They could be a great Catholic and, and pious in that sense, an understanding of their subjection to God and that he is the boss and they are not. But what they don't have is repentance from dead works. From somebody in that situation, the changing moment of that two things that you need for salvation, as it says, repentance and belief, is... For them, they need to repent of their dead works. They need to, to, to recognize what the gospel actually means. That is to say that Christ is indeed our righteousness. That, that we are viewed, if we are in Christ, we are hidden in Christ, okay? We are, it, God looks at us and doesn't see us because we're hidden in Christ. We get hit to be seen with his righteousness and therefore in only in that sense will we ever deserve to go to heaven. And it's because he deserved to go to heaven that we will get there. And it's also that same moment of, of indwelling of the Holy Spirit that's associated with that born-again experience that then gives us new desires and changes us from the inside out and makes us want to do better. So it's kind of this thing where you actually, the very minute you are righteous is also the minute that you start to want to be righteous, even though you're, you know, by all outward experience, you know, appearance is not not uh, there yet, and you never will be, but you should be getting better as a result of the born-again experience. It's, it's something that I hope that many of you understand that are listening to me. I know I'm not explaining it very well right now, because my burden is to say that in this case, and this is also true with whether you're talking to a Catholic or somebody that believes in uh, the Islam or the Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormonism, every single cult is a cult because they don't understand the gospel. This little tiny kernel, this little thing about how do we, we get righteous. That's what everybody wants to know. That's what, if you if you look at, I did a, a, a video one time called All the Religions of the World Are this, the Same. You could do a study of the religions and they're all trying to figure out the same question. Okay, we know we have sin. How do we get righteous? You know, how do we get righteous before God? How do we deal with this this sinful heart that we have? Okay, that is why this kernel and I, that is is the only thing that you need to focus on in terms of that. Now, uh, I could go at length and talk about yes, of course, this, the prayer to Mary and the saints and all that stuff is dangerous or whatever. But but it, it doesn't do any good unless the person is saved. And, and you're never going to get a person saved by convincing them that the saints are are not to be worshipped. They might just change to like, okay, well, yeah, I'll be a Catholic that doesn't believe about the saints. You know, that doesn't do you any good. What 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 you need to do is get the person saved so that then the Holy Spirit can then d begin to show them the error of the Catholic Church. So no apologetics except are needed, really, in my opinion, with a lot of these legalistic religions. If you're talking to an Islamic person, you're talking to Jehovah's Witness, don't don't engage in all the, the things that they want to talk about, or is Jesus the, the you know, this thing or that thing. Don't don't even worry about it. Just, just focus on righteousness uh, and how it is achieved, and know yourself how it's achieved. Uh, like I said, the, the gospel section, either on the Christianity 101 DVD, uh, there's a section just about the gospel. Also on all my websites, there's videos. Just watch those and start to understand what it is and how it's attained and let that be your focus. And I guarantee you, that's when you're going to start to see um, fumblings and, and stumblings, as this person says, uh, that uh, that's where he started to see some, some, some fruit. And that's because that's where it is. That's where the soft spot is with any uh, legalistic religion. Okay. Moving on to question number three. 
Question number three is about John MacArthur, who has been making the news lately with two controversial stances, one on cessationism, that is his Strange Fire series where he is condemning the idea of, uh, of the Holy Spirit for today. He is, of course, a cessationist, meaning that he does not believe that the Holy Spirit is for today, but also his his remarks about the mark of the beast, saying that one can actually take the mark of the beast and still uh, remain saved. On the first issue of the cessationism, this is uh, something that I talked about in a recent podcast, saying that even, you can tell even by the title of it, Strange Fire, he's pointing mostly to the ideas of the, the craziness that's going on with this and saying, look at that, isn't that crazy and uh, clearly wrong and clearly not biblical, therefore there is no manifestation of the Holy Spirit in any case today. So for on his side, he has all the perversions, all the ridiculous stuff. But we know that's not that's not a way to determine whether something is is true or not to 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 point out its its perversions. Take take something that you may know about uh, the 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 truth movement and uh, and the nine eleven thing or whatever. Isn't it true that uh, that that so many of uh, of the detractors of something like that just show all the the ridiculous stuff and the extreme stuff and say, look, therefore, this whole thing is is uh, is not true. Where cessationism has trouble is in the showing biblical support for it. There is no chapter or verse you can go to and say, look, the Bible teaches that all this stuff in Acts is not for today anymore. There is no indication of that. This this has to be really determined uh, based on a person's lack of experience in their own life or in their own uh, church or what what have you. Uh, I described in that recent podcast, and I'll, 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 I'll divert you to that podcast where I talk at much more length about this, but, um, but I think that in large part it has to do with us, especially in the West, not having faith anymore, true faith in God, and so God is not acting in much in the same way that Jesus says, you know, because of their, their lack of faith in, in these different towns, very few miracles could be done there. Uh, and I would say in my experience in Africa, uh, you it, it's expected more, it's seen more because they have no other option. God is their only hope and therefore their uh, faith is stronger because they need him more. So they pray more for those things and see it more. Therefore, their faith is strengthened more because they've experienced it more. To understand how that cycle can easily develop just by necessity alone. Oh, I need God. That's my only hope. I need. But see here in the West, we often don't need God. We have insurance and all this other stuff and I that's of course not a bad thing I, I'm not trying to say that I'm just saying that it's very rare that we uh, that we need him any especially not like in the book of Acts when people were running from certain death uh, going to church meant you were an enemy of the state with a target on your head for crucifixion or and other kinds of torture and death stoning particularly that was not uh, a situation that you could take lightly, and therefore there was a lot of prayer going on, and I would say uh, that's certainly one reason why we don't see it, but it's certainly not something that you can prove from Scripture. What The best thing you can do is show all the perversions and say, therefore, it's not true, wash your hands of it, and I think that he's wrong in that regard. About his stance about being able to take uh, the mark of the beast and repenting down the road, I'll read from Alan Kirshner's blog from his website, alankirshner.com, Eschatos Ministries, where he says in his October 16th post, How far can you go and still be able to repent? A plea to John MacArthur. 
He says, I want to respond to some recent statements from pre-tribulational teachers, John MacArthur, Brandon House, and Jimmy DeYoung, who believe people will be able to take the mark of the beast and worship the image and still be able to repent down the road. I find this irresponsible, dangerous, and completely contrary to what scripture teaches. I expect sensationalist teachers like Brandon House and Jimmy DeYoung to make these types of statements, but not the sober-minded John MacArthur, who I respect very much. Nevertheless, I need to respond. It is one thing for pre-tribulational teachers to mislead their flock by teaching them that they will be whisked away in beds of ease before the persecution of the Antichrist, but it's another thing for them to teach that people will be able to take the mark of the beast and worship his image during the Great Tribulation and yet later repent of it. I will first show that Scripture teaches clearly teaches that taking the mark uh, and worshiping the image is unpardonable. Once someone decides to take the mark and worship the beast's image, it's a two-fold action, not disconnected from each other. They are sealed with their eternal fate. Then I will play the remarks of DeYoung, House, and MacArthur and respond to their statements. Number one, Scripture is unequivocally clear that if anyone... Quote, takes uh, makes the decision to worship the Antichrist and take his mark, they will seal their fate. Revelation fourteen nine, and another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast with his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink of the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into a cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and smoke and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night these worshipers of the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Uh, let me jump in here and quote another um, verse that I think is, is, is important. In Revelation fourteen eleven. it says, And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. So that's even more clear, I think, that it says there in Revelation fourteen eleven that it is whoever receives the mark. So, um, let's pick back up with uh, Alan Kirshner here. Uh, he says, um, The serious tenor of the angelic warning indicates there are no exceptions. Do you think the Apostle John, as he was receiving this warning, asked the angel, Yeah, but how far can one go? What do pre-tribus not understand here? He will torment with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Number two, one of the main purposes of the bold judgments is to execute wrath upon the beast's kingdom, especially his followers. The bulls open up, describe, uh, open up describing his followers, quote, upon the people who bore the mark and, worship, and worshipped its image. Twice in the, bulls, narr- in the bulls' narrative, we are told that they refuse to repent. Revelation 16:2, 10 through 11 says, So the first angel went and poured out his bull on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had the power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne uh, of the beast and its kingdom, and it was plunged into darkness. People gnawed, gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores, they did not repent of their deeds. I find it bewildering that these uh, are teachers of the Bible who would turn to these passages on their head and insist that the beast-marked followers are still able to repent when we are told unequivocally that they will not. Number three, the next passage shows how one becomes an overcomer. Revelation 24 says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those whom the authority to judge was, was committed. Also, I saw the thrones on those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or in their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. 
The overarching imperative in the book of Revelation is to be an overcomer. This is done not by capitulating to the Antichrist by worshiping him. To be an overcomer is not some uh, amorphous process. It is concretely situated in the test of faith that all will have to face living at that time. Worship the Antichrist or Jesus Christ. If you worship the Antichrist, you will seal your fate. If you worship Jesus Christ, you will be rewarded for being a faithful overcomer. Number four, there is an unbiblical theology out there that makes human beings uh, autonomous from God. One of the consequences of this man-centered theology says that man is free to choose whomever he wants, i.e. libertarian free will. The problem is that God is the only being in the world who is sovereign and free. God has the, the freedom to bring down his judgment at any, any time upon the ungodly. He is not restricted to waiting until they die. In fact, the seven churches are called upon to repent before it's too late, Revelation 2 through 3. We see this most clearly in Paul's statement in 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12, which is the same context of the Great Tribulation when the Antichrist mark and image system takes place. He says, the arrival of the lawless one will be by Satan's working and with all kinds of miracles and signs and false wonders and with every kind of evil deception directed against those who are perishing because they found no place in their hearts for the truth so as to be saved. Consequently, God sends on them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. And so on, and so all of them who have not believed the truth but have delighted in evil will be condemned. God will harden the hearts of those who take the mark, so much so that we are told above all that when God actually judges them, they will refuse to repent. To be sure, MacArthur does not affirm libertarian free will, but many other pre-tribulationists do. So that last point is directed toward them. Then he goes on to show a, a video, um, and he says, he says that everyone in the tribulation period will have to take the mark. He says that in order for people to function in the beast's economy, people must take his mark. Therefore, everyone will take the mark. That is a non sequitur. This makes no sense because the entire book of Revelation is to be an overcomer over the beast by not taking the mark. In fact, it explicitly states that true believers will not take the mark. And he says, quotes Revelation uh, 24 again. The people who populate the millennium are those who refuse to take the mark, not those who take the mark and repent later. MacArthur is egregiously mistaken on this. Former beast worshippers will not be entering into the kingdom. It is those who overcome the beast that will enter the kingdom. One can begin to see how pre-tribulationalism is a false teaching. It has dire ramification. It's setting up believers to become vulnerable during the Antichrist Great Tribulation. Eschatology matters. Lastly, I want to note how flippant and disrespectful Brandon House sounded in the video. There was no soberness of tone in, uh, in this serious discussion. It was shameful. My plea to you Mr. MacArthur is to reconsider your statements in light of Scripture and your love of God's people. Re-examine the text, reflect on the ramifications, pray that you see the truth on this matter so that you can warn the sheep. Take away. Do not take the mark and worship his image. That's the issue. Can I take the mark and still get saved later on? Do not arrogantly think that you will wait till the things happen, uh, then find resolve, because, quote, Satan's working with all kinds of miracles and signs and false wonders and with every kind of evil deception directed at those who are perishing. This is the event in which a multitude of professing believers will apostatize. Do not dismiss this warning. It will be a deceptive temptation for the vulnerable. Thank you, Alan Kirshner, for that. He has a great blog over there at alankirshner.com, and I encourage you to also subscribe to his podcast and uh, and blog. So I guess that's it for me today. And uh, if you have any questions for me, again, you can send them in through the website, and I will talk to you all later. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you would like a free copy of the Christianity 101 DVD, which contains 8 gigabytes of audio, video, and text of various discipleship materials on a data DVD, please go to any one of my websites and look for the Christianity 101 button. 
It's totally free and I'll ship it to you wherever you are in the world. If you would like to support this ministry or any of the others that I do, please consider a tax-deductible donation, which can be sent by PayPal using the email chris at chriswhiteministries.com or by clicking the PayPal button on any one of my websites. Another great way to support this ministry is by writing a review of the podcast on iTunes or writing a review of my books on Amazon. Reviews figure very prominently into the ranking algorithms of both of those websites, and the higher they rank, the more people that can be reached. Thanks for your time and for subscribing to this feed.